0: Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you.
1: Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of His hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio.
0: Good morning. Good morning. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Thank you so much for the honor of your time and spending time together today. Our Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, God will show you a way out so that you can endure. So let's dig in a little bit to this verse of the day. Again, you can sign up for the Growing Your Faith verse of the day at MyFaithRadio.com, and you'll have uh, some wonderful artwork there in addition to uh, having this be the first thing in your inbox each morning. So that's a great thing to do. Go to MyFaithRadio.com, and you'll find tons of other great resources there as well. We'd love to connect with you and hear from you. And the Growing Your Faith verse of the day today from 1 Corinthians 10, 13 reminds us that temptations are real. Like, right, the temptations in your life are real. Um, but they're also no different from what others experience. And you may be saying to yourself, no, 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 I'm tempted in ways that are very, very different than other people. Um, what tempts me doesn't tempt them. What tempts them doesn't tempt me. Yes, but the point is we're all tempted. The temptations that we experience um, other people experience temptation as well. And what Paul wants us to be mindful of is the faithfulness of God in the midst of all of that. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can stand. And so you may say, in response to that, well then, why do I give in to temptation? When you are tempted, Paul says, not if, but when, so that's notable, when you are tempted— do you look for the way out that God provides? I think that's the question that emerges in today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. But are you looking for the way out? are you looking for the way out that God provides? God will show you a way out so that you can endure. That's the promise here. So um, the way out today might be a step back. It might be to turn and run. It may be to close your eyes and count to 20. It may be to take a walk or read scriptures. It might be to seek out conversation or accountability. It might be to clean the house or walk the dog or listen to a podcast or pray through your prayer list or do something on your to-do list. I don't know what the way out will be that God will provide, but God will provide a way out. I think many times we're just not looking for a way out. We're tempted and we just give in to temptation. I know I do. God is right there waiting for us to ask him to show us a way out so that we can endure. Are you and I looking today for the way out that God provides? Let's acknowledge today that we're tempted, that temptation to sin is real, and let's acknowledge that God is faithful. And then when we're tempted today, let me invite you. I'll do it as well. Let's consciously turn toward God. Let's ask God to show us a way out so that we can endure. And then tomorrow, let's share our glory stories with one another of God's faithfulness in helping us withstand. How's that sound? All right, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is going to join us next. We're going to survey a few of um, the headlines of the day as we bring the mind of Christ to bear on the issues that we're all facing. So I'll ask you the question that people um, surveyed were asked here. Do you identify with a particular political expression in America or increasingly do you identify as independent? How far would I have to press you to get you to acknowledge that you identify in one direction or the other. We're going to talk about the challenge that traditional parties are facing um, and how younger and younger generations are identifying as independent, even if they really aren't. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. joining us now dr mark caleb smith from cedarville university good morning mark
1: good morning carmen how are you doing
0: i'm i am well i am well i hope it is well with your soul
1: it is it is we're looking forward to the end of the semester and uh, getting summer kicked off here but it doesn't feel like summer at the moment but that's okay <laughs> it's around the corner
0: Yeah, the promise. The promise is there for sure. Um, So a record percentage of Americans surveyed identify now as politically independent. I find this a little suspect because it looks like if you push them just a little bit, they're not actually independent. They just think there's some cachet now in saying that they're independent. So you want to read us in on this Gallup poll?
1: Yeah, I, <clears throat> the rate of independence, according to the Gallup poll, is up to almost 50% of the population when they're asked that question that you discussed. So 49% people saying they they would claim independent status, uh, 25% Democrats, 25% Republican. And so, uh, you know, if we take those numbers at face value, roughly half the country is independent and half the country is partisan. Um. Now, you know, like you said, I don't think that this is uh, fully reflective of political reality, but it's certainly an interesting trend and one that we've been seeing for quite some time, Uh, more and more independents and less and less hardcore partisans. But as you said, when you poke people a little bit, they tend to head toward one party or another. And then, of course, when it comes down to voting, they have to make choices in what's usually a two-party environment. And so the impact of this, I think, is a little bit lessened compared to the the fact that this just jumps off the page when you see that
0: number? Um, does it matter? I mean, I, I guess this was, you know, this is where the rubber meets the road for most yeah, of us. Um, it's easier to say we're independent because then we're not dragged into the, whatever the, the political discourse is um, because we don't have to defend a party. I don't want to defend a party for sure. Um, right. But to describe myself as independent is probably not, wholly accurate either. Um, do you think that we're we're just identifying as independent sometimes so that we don't have to have the hard conversations with difficult people?
1: Uh, and that's I think that's a good a good point. Um, I think it's also been the last few years you've seen the parties just to some extent just take some really outlandish positions on issues. Um, and as the parties become a little bit more extreme, especially when it comes to primaries, when it comes to their rhetoric. Uh, I think the independents just feel like, you know, it's a way of saying, I'm just tired. I'm tired of the toxicity. I'm tired of the uh, the coarseness of our politics. And I'm just going to say I'm independent just to be free from it for a little bit. But, you know, when you walk into that voting booth and you have to make a decision, uh, the the data tells us that most people will break toward one party or another even if they claim independent status, because there just aren't that many choices, practically speaking. But, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a social shield to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also just a signal to other people. This is just too much for me, and I'm I'm a little bit tired of politics.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit tired of politics. So um, I would like to talk with you about um, the death penalty and capital punishment, Um This was this sort of came back onto my radar yesterday. I was reading about these sisters, Diane and Michelle Rosenthal, Um, two of their brothers, Cecil and David Rosenthal, were among those who were killed in October of 2018 um, at the Tree of Life synagogue attack. Um, And they wanted to address the prevalent misconception that the family members of the 11 people killed do not want the person responsible, um, put to death. And they say, uh, no, we do. We want to see justice done. In this case, You know, justice is uh, in the form of capital punishment. Can you, is there a connection? Do you think there's a connection between uh, maybe people of faith, believers? I'm thinking here, Christians, Jews, and, and, and people of the Muslim faith in particular, um, acknowledging capital punishment? Versus those maybe from a secular worldview who are more resistant to it? Or, I mean, am I completely wrong?
1: Uh, I don't think you're completely wrong. Uh, when you look at the the data, capital punishment um, has been generally popular throughout uh, the 20th century into the 21st century. Uh, usually two-thirds to three-fourths of Americans express some support for capital punishment. Um, that's declined quite a bit over the last couple of decades, Uh, But still, usually you see a pretty healthy majority, sometimes close to 60% or so um, in support. And so uh, I think a lot of that is driven by people of faith. Um, I think when you look at scripture, scripture clearly gives the allowance for the death penalty um, for government to use. And I think that it is a reflection to a degree um, of a high standard of justice. Now, you know, Critics, of course, would argue, you know, you're pro-life and you're pro-human dignity, and you talk about people being created in God's image on the one hand, and on the other, you support uh, capital punishment. Well, yeah, I don't think those things are inconsistent, personally. Um, I think that it's, it's, it signifies that I take these crimes so seriously that certain, certain times, uh, maybe the death penalty is the proper punishment in some situations. Uh, it's the only way to really have a just outcome. Uh, now, there are lots of discussions about the Constitution and uh, how well this is applied. Uh, you can make the argument that it's applied unfairly and unequally in our in our system of uh, criminal justice. But, uh, yeah, I think there is sort of a faith bedrock of that support to some extent. But support for the death penalty has been uh, sort of fracturing for a while. And it isn't nearly as culturally relevant, I don't think, as it was certainly when I was uh, in school.
0: I think this approach is interesting also that these sisters took. They felt like they were being misrepresented and they felt like their views were being misrepresented. And so they called their own press conference and, um, you know, and took it upon themselves to say, you know, we we want our view and the views of the actual families of the victims um, to find a way forward here. And we don't want to just be spoken for on behalf of um, by other people who. You know, don't support the death penalty. So it's an interesting um I think, conversation for each of us to have um, consider whether or not we believe in the use of the death penalty. If so, why? Um, if our own family were directly affected, you know, does it right. change does it change the way um, that we mm-hmm. think or feel about these things? Um, even though we certainly celebrate those those people, those individuals um, who are able to say in the face of horrific loss, um i forgive this person because we also know that unforgiveness is is a horrible path to trod the rest of your life and so um there's a conversation about justice and forgiveness and which ones of those are personal and which ones of those um you know are carried out you know as as we the people collectively through the government i think those are good conversations for people to be having hey mark when we come back um i am going to ask you about ranked choice voting I know nothing about it and so will you help me understand it? It looks like Minnesota might be moving in that direction. Absolutely. All right, ranked choice voting, Up Next. Do you even know what that is because I'm just like a check the box like do you, this person or that person and apparently I might um <clears throat> I might have to start approaching voting differently. Do you know what ranked choice voting is? That's Up Next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. He was a famous trumpet man from all Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was the top man at his craft. But then his number came up. Talking with Dr. Mark on Caleb Smith. Well, the headlines of the day bring the mind of Christ to bear on these issues so that you and I can be prepared for the conversations that are taking place in the world. Ranked choice voting. Has it come to a, um, uh, a city or a state near you? It may be headed to Minnesota. So, um, Mark, what is ranked choice voting? And, you know, I don't know, thumbs up or thumbs down.
1: So it's kind of an an interesting approach to voting, one that would take a lot of transition for us if we adopted it at a broad level. Um, But what it basically does is you walk into the voting booth and you're presented with a list of options and you get to choose, you get to rank those candidates in the order of your preference. And so you would pick your first choice candidate, your second choice candidate, and your third choice candidate most frequently. and Collectively, all those choices would be examined. You know, when the results are tallied, and the person with the lowest number of votes is eliminated, and then the votes are redistributed um, based on those preferences. So, if I had chosen the third place person who gets eliminated, but then I have my—if that was my first choice—and um, then my vote gets eliminated, or that person gets gets thrown out, then my second choice would be calculated as my as my next vote. And then that would be retabulated across all the votes. Uh, and then we would see if anyone has emerged yet with a majority. And so it could go through several of those rounds where candidates get eliminated, votes get redistributed, and then we decide who ends up getting a majority of the votes. So certainly different than what we're used to in America, where, like you were saying before, you just check a box uh, and then you just are done with it. This isn't quite that simple. Um, I personally like it. I think it's a really good idea I don't think that it would solve all of our problems. I think there are some issues with it for sure, but I think it could be an interesting innovation uh, that would create different incentives for candidates, which is probably what we need most desperately right now.
0: Um. Yeah, one person chiming in saying, "I don't like ranked choice voting." There you go. <laughs> well, you, see, we have a one-person <laughs> poll so far, and they don't like it. I here's my here's my concern, or one of my concerns. Um. I have to know all the candidates in order to actually rank them all versus being well-informed about the top two or three candidates among whom I have, you know, a really strong preference. I think there's also the risk of, um, like, we're already, it feels like, at a level of distrust or mistrust in terms of, does my vote count? Is it being counted accurately? And I just wonder with ranked choice voting, am I going to really start to wonder whether or not my vote was counted and counted accurately and everybody else's votes counted accurately? Cause it sounds not just like straight up math. It sounds like manipulated math. And I, you know, so right. that's my, that's my feelings level. It's probably totally irrational. Um, but that's part of what I'm feeling.
1: Well, you would, as far as the first issue, you would usually only rank your top three choices. And so if it was a large primary with eight or 10 candidates, um, You wouldn't necessarily invest in all of them, the same level of information, although maybe you should try. But you'd have your top three that you'd put on your ballot, and then that would be the end of it. Um, I agree with you that the math and the the perception could be difficult to overcome. There's so much distrust in our electoral system right now um, that this this probably would not help that. Uh, It had to be very transparently done. Um, Now, I, you know, I don't think there's a lot of corruption in our electoral system. I don't think we've had uh, elections that have been rigged or anything like that. But still, there are a lot of Americans who do. And I think communicating with them and helping them work through uh, that is is important. And this would make that difficult. I agree with you. The benefit, though...
0: yeah. So far, everybody on the text line doesn't like it just for the now I've got uh, six people who have so far voted and we have six votes for no, we don't like it. But it could also just be that they don't like it because it's new.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, I can understand that. But the benefit is, is that the candidates have to appeal to a broader group of people other than just the ones who would choose them as their first choice. And so you have a strong interest then to be, uh, you know, to to craft your appeal beyond your base and to consider the positions of people that would normally see you as an opponent. And then you have to to sort of rethink your whole approach to campaigning based on these possibilities. But you know, I think it would really only work if you have an environment a political environment where there's a lot of diversity uh, and there where there could be some moderate influence potentially. In some situations, you know, if it's an extremely conservative place or an extremely liberal place, ranked choice voting isn't going to give you all of a sudden a different option, really. Uh, but it could give you maybe slightly more moderate candidates. But if you have a competitive environment, I think this could really help people start to bridge those partisan divides that that, that exist. But I can understand why it would be it would be difficult to sell, at least in terms of public opinion. It's, it's a little bit complicated, and like you said, it is brand new, and there's this uh, lingering suspicion out there that it's just a, another way to rig the system.
0: Uh Lisa's on the text line and she says, OK, well, then how many times would we have to go back to the polling place? Because it sounds like a logistics nightmare. We actually just go and vote once. Right. And that's then right. there's lots of that's math. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah.
1: So the tabulations is where candidates get eliminated. Then your vote would be recalculated uh, based on the the new set of candidates that are being considered. So you'd only vote yeah. once.
0: Lots of um, lots of uh, I'm against it. It doesn't sound American. Thumbs down. Yeah, we have no support in our listening audience, just so that you know, in this very unscientific poll taking place. If you want to join in the conversation, the text line is always open, 877-933-2484. Mark, uh, it's National Week of Conversation. Did you know that?
1: Uh, I did not know it until uh, until I talked to your producer about it. So, yeah, I did not know that at all. But it's in- it's an interesting idea. Um, getting together with people that you normally wouldn't get together with and having a real conversation, I think that's a great idea.
0: I do, too. So uh, you guys can check it out, conversation.us, an opportunity for us to show up for each other and um, and for the country we love and to get into conversations with people we would not ordinarily sit down and talk with. And there's all kinds of conversation guides at conversation.us. Mark, as always, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Carmen. Thanks to you and your listeners uh, and have a good rest of the spring and hopefully a good start to summer.
0: Likewise. You listen to Mornings with Carmen. Let's go upwards with Max Lucato. All right, I've got a couple of headlines um, for us this morning. I'm going to lift these up as opportunities for us to pray and also for us to consider how we might respond in a similar situation. So I want you to just, first of all, plan in advance on praying for all the folks involved in these two stories. In Kansas City, an 84-year-old man, happens to be white, um, had already gone to bed, His doorbell rings at 10 p.m. I don't know what he was thinking or feeling, but I got an 85-year-old mom and an almost 90-year-old dad. Um, And I know they're not used to their doorbell being rung at 10 o'clock at night or later, and I don't know all that's happening, right, in the lives of any of these people. But instead of speaking to the young black man who was at his door, this 84-year-old gentleman in Kansas City, Um, shot him twice. Now, thankfully, that young man has already been treated and released from the hospital recovering at home, but his world and his worldview is forever changed. Ralph Yarl is a good kid. He's an honor student. He's a member of the Allstate band. He was out picking up his younger brothers, and he went to the wrong house in arguably the wrong neighborhood. Jarl's parents had asked him to pick up his brothers at a home at 115th Terrace. He mistakenly went to 115th Street, both in Kansas City. Um, Andrew Lester, 84 years old, lives alone. He's very likely going to spend the rest of his life in prison. Um, His home has already been vandalized. And even if he were to be released from jail awaiting trial, he can never go back there. It is already surrounded by people who are looking for vigilante justice. So we got to start building the racial and the generational and the economic. I mean, we got to start bridging the divides in this country. Jesus brought down every dividing wall of hostility between us, but we have done a really good job reconstructing them. Everybody is suffering in the midst of this and fear reigns among us. And so I, I want to encourage you during this National Conversation Week, like get in a conversation with somebody about this today. Talk about how you feel about it. Talk about how you think an 84-year-old person living by themselves who's already gone to bed um, and has their doorbell rung and it's a person they don't recognize. Um, and And talk about it. Talk about whether or not he should be living alone at this stage of his life. Like, right, maybe there's a different conversation to have. Um, and then in upstate New York, in case you think this is just, you know, isolated to some particular part of the country or to some particular group in the country, this this story comes from upstate New York, 20-year-old woman. She was a passenger in a car. They were looking for um, a friend's house. They made a wrong turn and so they're turning around in a driveway. How many times have you pulled into somebody's driveway to turn around? Imagine for a moment that somebody steps out onto the porch and starts shooting at you, because that's what happened in Hebron, New York, when this carload of young adults turned around in a driveway. The homeowner um, fired at the car from the front porch. There's no cell phone service in the area, so this Um, These people drove to the next town where they called 911. And by the time first responders were um, able to get there, Kaylin Gillis, 20, was dead. And now 65-year-old Kevin Monahan is in the Warren County Jail facing a charge of second-degree murder. We could, every single day, talk about gun violence in America. And most of the times that we talk about it, we're talking about mass shootings because they take place every day. But these, what I'll call one-offs, are, are evidence that this is not just about mentally unstable young people accessing firearms and using them to work out their identity politics or their perceived hate. There is something deep going on Um. That would lead people to go to their front door or to their front porch and fire on people who are turning around in the driveway or happen to walk up to the wrong door to pick up their younger siblings. And we got to talk about it. We got to talk about it among ourselves and then we have to talk about it across the divisions. So, again, um, I'm going to encourage you to check out the resources at conversation.us. Because in addition to helping us have the conversation with ourselves... It's gonna help us have conversations with others. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen Laburge. Next up, we're gonna talk with Eric Swithin. He's the executive director of the Alliance for Ending the Fatherless Epidemic. Because part of this conversation is about how we were raised and the residue of that. What's going on generationally in your family and in your community, and how are men of faith and churches called into the gap? That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm a love. Eric Swithin is joining us now. He is the executive director of the Alliance for Ending the Fatherless Epidemic. We want you to watch the fatherless epidemic documentary. You can find it at fatherlessepidemic.movie or just directly on YouTube. If you want me to um, shoot you the direct link to the film, um, just text me at 877-933-2484, and I'll send you the link as well. Eric, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You have a very, very powerful personal testimony in relationship to this conversation. And so um, before we talk specifically about the documentary, I'm wondering if you will tell us your story. In a
2: nutshell, I was raised in a really broken home, and that was preceded by two parents that also came from broken homes who came from broken homes. And so that generational curse was just passed down. And it, it didn't even mean that Both parents weren't in the family. It may have meant that a dad wasn't emotionally there, but he was physically there. And what that left for me was a dad that was pushed out of the house by the family court system. He was constantly trying to fight to be a part of our lives. And he grew weary and sort of gave up along the way. And we ended up reconciling later in life. And um, I walked him through terminal cancer. He just passed away a week ago. Mm -hmm. Mm, and, I'm so uh, sorry
0: because I enjoyed meeting him in the documentary. Oh, I'm so yeah, sorry. Yeah, he did
2: such a great job. He, you know, he described that on his deathbed as besides his kids, his greatest life accomplishment. So that was really special. Mm. Uh, but but ultimately, listen, I found myself seeking validation in all the wrong places because of a deep daddy wound. I had a skewed perception of who God the Father was. And there was just no doubt I was gonna pass that brokenness down to my kids and and continue the cycle
0: so talk with us about um this project the uh the the documentary um and then we'll back up and we'll talk about the ministries related to it. um when people go to the fatherless epidemic dot movie um there's not just the the movie link, but there are also really wonderful resources, including a fantastic discussion guide that's got three lessons in it. And actually the three lessons take us through three really significant points of the documentary as well. So lead us into the conversation. Why do we need to know more about the fatherless epidemic? Like what is the fatherless epidemic? And then we can talk about what you guys are doing to address it.
2: Well, I'm a numbers guy. And if you crunch the numbers and if you're to graph Every societal ill in America and put it all on one chart, the majority of our societal ills, a huge portion of them, would all intersect. And at that intersection, you would find a broken home. And if you have broken homes, you have broken communities. And if you have broken communities, that's what our country's made up of. We like to think of it as a trickle down effect, right? If we have the right people in office, then that's going to make everything better. But ultimately, the way God designed us, if you look at the Bible and you look at from the very beginning, he designed us to have healthy homes that produce worshipers that follow him, and they will produce more worshipers that follow him, and the cycle continues. So if you look at uh, even from a financial perspective, right, last year, $80.7 billion were spent in prison expenditures, Mm. and some stats show as high as 90% of those in prison come from a fatherless home. Fatherless men are 279% more likely to illegally carry a gun and deal drugs. Daughters from fatherless homes are 900% more vulnerable to sexual abuse and rape. And get this, fatherless boys are 14 times more likely to become rapists. Mm. And so you start looking at teen suicides, homelessness, poverty, education rates, substance abuse mental illness and guess what they all intersect at fatherlessness
0: um eric we wanted uh, again if you guys want the direct link to the fatherless um epidemic movie you can just text me Uh, and I'll send you the link. Or you can go there directly, fatherlessepidemic.movie. I highly recommend you also download the free discussion guide that you will find there. Um, Or you can text me at 877-933-2484, and I'll send you the direct link. Um, One of the things I really appreciated about the documentary is the way that you feature so many different men um, who, are, who share their own testimony related to this, but who are also actively engaged in ministry. So this really is an alliance. This really is a network. Um, you know, There is a person who addresses this from a Native American perspective, one from a Hispanic American perspective. A lot of minority men telling their stories um, and engaging, as well as lots of guys from across the southern United States, Um, I think that might surprise people. Talk about the particular communities where, I mean, there's this one that you feature in Texas, and I'm just like, I mean, 90% of the kids in that community, 90% of the kids in that community are growing up in a house with no dad. Like, that's staggering to me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And those kids seek validation, and they find that in the gangs. They find security in, in gangs and initiation in gangs. And and that's where, you know, we we see the same woundedness across the country, but it manifests in different ways. So we work with kids whose fathers are emotionally absent. They're workaholics. They're millionaires. And these kids grow up to be narcissists because they see uh, that that's what daddy is. And or they try to gain daddy's, you know, catch daddy's eye by obtaining you know, success on their own. On Native American reservations, it looks very different in hispanic you know uh, neighborhoods, it looks very different. but all in all, what we've noticed across the country as we pour into people from coast to coast is that it's a problem in every neighborhood it's It's not exclusive to the hood or to poverty stricken areas it's even in the suburbs
0: yeah. Um we're we're talking with Eric Swithin. He is the executive director of the Alliance for Ending the Fatherless Epidemic. They've got a documentary that's available right now. It's free on YouTube. Um fatherlessepidemic.movie is the website and if you go there in addition to linking to the movie, you can get some really fantastic resources and more information about the Alliance for Ending Um, fatherlessness. Um, And so you can also just text me and I'll send you the direct link, 877-933-2484. When we come back, we're going to have Eric describe to us the solution to the problem. Like, how do we end the fatherless epidemic in America? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament— We see people who, like, wake up, they come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word faith to 41224. All right again, if you want the uh the link to Fatherless Epidemic Movie, which is fatherless epidemic dot movie. Um if you want me to just send you the direct link, you can just text me, eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Um you'll appreciate Eric knowing that there's a lot of people texting in and um and one person who says, Um, um, I really need this. I grew up without a dad and um and I'd like some help. So there's so much here for adults as well. And let me just encourage you. Um, there's just fantastic resources in this. I, I'd like for you to talk about um, EMPCOA. I, I have a Marine in my family and um, and he chuckled um, when I offered this up. So talk with us about EMPCOA.
2: Well, Semper Fi. MPCOA um, <laughs> M- M- is an acronym in counterintelligence that stands for enemy's most probable course of action. And this is at the heart of it. And this is really what changed my life. This is what directs our ministry. This is what I think would make the greatest single impact on our country if we would as a church begin to direct our focus here and and understanding God's created order and, and what he designed us for and why, and knowing that the enemy is coming against that exact thing. So M.P. is a technique we'll use to describe and try to understand how the enemy is going to attack us. So let's say we're going to go infiltrate a city. We would ask ourselves, OK, what's the enemy going to do to try to thwart our attack? Well, that's what is taking place. The enemy's primary goal in this world is to give people in the family a skewed perception of their earthly dad so that they don't know the heavenly father the way that he should be known. And, there, and the second objective is to tear apart the family, because if you have broken families, again, that brokenness is going to continue and it's going to worsen with each passing generation. So what that looks like, listen, I used to think that God, the father, was this punitive dad that would just kind of take out his belt when I messed up, or he would walk away from me. Or he didn't hear my prayers. He was not a loving father. If anything, I was just sort of a stepchild that was a nuisance. And when I began to understand his heart, that his knee-jerk reaction is for us to curl up in his lap, he's a redeeming guy. He wants to restore us. He's encouraging. He's not punitive. Right? And, And that really stemmed from the way I looked at my earthly dad. So I think... It starts there, and understanding that the enemy wants to skew our perception of God, and secondly, he wants to just rip apart our family, starting with Dad.
0: You guys offer up um, mentorship as the uh, the genuine solution to this problem. Um, the documentary really does introduce us to a number of ministries, um, and and then the collective or the collaborative way that these ministries are working together. Um, encouraging godly men to step up and step into this space. So can you invite people into um, this this process? Like, what does it look like to be a godly man who presses himself in, into mentoring and ministering to the fatherless today?
2: I think it's a whole church thing. You know, the great mandate of James 127 is that we or into the orphan and the widow the single mom and the fatherless kid and and so it becomes a church mission you know you have the mothers you know or the the woman's ministry just paying attention and having an attentiveness that there might be a single mom that's drowning and she just might need a little help maybe picking up the kids from school or taking them to, to practice or bringing a meal once in a while the men's ministry, instead of just sitting around and barbecuing and talking about the Bible, maybe they could help fix her car or or fix her house together as a team, you know, pour into the single moms, you know, in the ranks of their own congregation. And and then the youth ministries and the men's ministries and the women's ministries, the whole church coming together and noticing that fatherless kid in their ranks and filling in the gap and showing them what a godly man looks like. In a very safe way, we want to obviously make sure our kids are safe and there's a a protocol to do that. Um, But I think it starts there. It also starts with adoption and foster care. We make up a majority, Christians, when I say we, Christians, practicing Christians in America, make up the majority of mentorship of youth in this country and foster care and adoption. But if you look at the number of adoptions and foster care and mentorship that we actually do, Versus the Barna research that says, hey, we've thought about doing it. Literally, it's tenfold more. In other words, if people in the church actually did what they were thinking about doing or have thought about doing, we would literally empty the foster care system of their kids. And we would literally fill in the gap with those kids that don't have a daddy. And moving forward, they would begin to heal from their woundedness. And see what a godly man looks like and what a healthy family looks like. Even inviting those kids, you know, to dinner and, and to be a part of the family in a way. I think that's where it starts.
0: Talk with us about um ABBA father. Because I think that one of the things that stood out to me in the documentary, and I can't remember his name, he's the tall basketball guy from Colorado.
2: <laughs> Bay Forest. I
0: should yeah. So um he's talking about talking with kids. And when he's just, you know, talking with kids about being dearly loved children, them genuinely not knowing that, like having no point of reference to receive that they are dearly loved children. Um, and that gets us, I think, to this question of whether or not we see God as Abba.
2: You're, you're spot on. That's, that's the heart of it. You know, I have a, I have seven unofficially adopted sons, you know, in the process of just doing life and doing ministry. We've come across kids that don't have a father that have said, hey, will you be my dad? Will you be my spiritual father? And I said, yes. And, and one of those kids, he's amazing. He's a, he's a man now. He's in the army and he's going to school at Morehouse in Atlanta. He's, a, he's an outstanding young man. Um, when I met him, he had failed his fifth suicide attempt. And he um, he felt like so many kids do. What did I do wrong? Why did my dad leave? What's wrong with me? Why didn't he want me? In fact, on my dad's deathbed less than a week ago, he confessed to me that that's what he felt because of his dad's absence. I did something wrong. And there's something wrong with me. I'm unwanted. When you have that, that's a that's a deep wound. Even if your dad's in the house, but he's not tender and he doesn't demonstrate and reflect God and his love and point you to the perfect father in in tenderness and humility and compassion. When you have that disconnect, it impacts your entire life. In fact, I'd say most Christians don't even know Father God as Abba. Abba means daddy. It's the most intimate term you could ever call the father. And I'll leave you with this. J.I. Packer, one of my favorite quotes of all time. He said, if you want to know how mature a Christian is, then see what he makes of God as father Mm. and of himself as his child. And and that is the key, is is really, we have to ask that question honestly this morning. Is do we know him? Do we know the Father as Abba? And if not, what wound or bad theology is standing in the way of that?
0: Hmm. Eric Swithin is the executive director of the Alliance for Ending the Fatherless Epidemic. We're talking today about the Fatherless Epidemic documentary, movie. I am happy to send you the direct link on your phone just text me 877-933-2484 um Eric will you will you come back because I feel like we have just begun to scratch the surface of this conversation and we I can tell you by the feedback I'm getting on the text line we want more
2: I would love to It'd be my honor
0: Yeah you're a real, you are you are blessing us and blessing so many others thank you for being with us here on Mornings with Carmen We got to take a very brief break Um, But again, text me at 877-933-2484. I'll send you the direct link back to the Fatherless Epidemic movie at fatherlessepidemic.movie. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Wow. Thank you so much to all of you texting in this morning. My prayers are arising for you as you share your stories about um, this need in your own life and the observation you're making about this need in the lives of others. Um, let's let's become a part of this solution. Fatherlessepidemic.movie. I'll send you the direct link. Just text me at 877-933-2484. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith,